can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And that's what we do when we come to, to, to Jonesboro. We listen. We listen. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth. And he expected you to use them in that proportion. Which is a a good lesson. The first L is listening. And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. But listening and learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, need to tell to somebody you love. And now is the time to do it. Go home and tell stories. And tell each one with love, ending with, I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham, speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92, about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98 in New Hampshire. Thanks to everyone watching and listening, and especially thanks to our live in-studio audience. We're so glad you're here. So our mission at True Tales Live is to provide space for people to tell their first-person experience stories. Stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect. While we very much encourage the development of storytelling skills, we have monthly workshops and provide other assistance to tellers, this is not a competition. We have no grading, no judging, no scoring. Our belief is that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together, and that's why we're here.
So our theme for tonight's show is overcoming. We have six tellers that you are going to be privileged to hear from. We start with Sharon Rhodes, then Danielle Rocco, Henry Katzman, Christine Kelly, Tom Osberg, and Martha Reed Johnson. They each have a 10-minute limit for their story. And David Frainer will be our MC tonight. He'll come up and introduce each one to you before they start. And after the storytelling, stay tuned for an interview of one of tonight's tellers, Henry Katzman. But first, for the stories, let's welcome David up here to introduce our first teller. <laughs> Sharon Rhodes works and lives in Portsmouth, where she claims she is looking for the ultimate studio apartment. One of her most favorite things to do is spend time with her grandson, Jacob, who she says is always in the present moment. Her story is about what happened when, in 1971, she was coerced into being a contestant in Portsmouth Miss Jubilee beauty pageant. Sharon recalls, I was 16, and all I wanted to do in the world was musical theater. Before Market Square Day came along, the city had a week-long celebration that was called Jubilee Week, and the pageant was a standing-room-only event. I was assured I would have a positive on-stage experience. It turned out to be anything but. <laughs> Consequently, I still suffer, she says, from what I call PTSF, post-traumatic stage fright. <laughs> in spite of PTSF, or perhaps in a way because of it, Sharon is here with us tonight to share with us her story of beauty and the beasts. Sharon. Is that a good height? Before I forget, I want to dedicate this story to A.M. And that's not Jacob. Um, I feel like I'm doing my own memorial service because I have a picture, I have a quote, and I have a little song at the end. And the basket up there would be for me in lieu of flowers. <laughs> so, um, I have a quote, I'll read the quote first from Karen Abdul Malik. Storytelling is all natural medicine, a way to heal society's viciousness. So this picture, I brought it just to kind of, you know, because now it's not radio and everybody, you know, at home can see it, so I'm not just showing it to the radio audience. Um, a very prominent photographer in Portsmouth saw me walking down the street with a friend and asked me to be in this pageant. And I wasn't in any way interested in doing that. I was interested in musical theater, uh, singing, so, but I thought it might be a good idea to get on the stage, 
because I had so far not been able to get into plays in school. That's okay, and I wasn't nervous like I am now. I wasn't, no, there was nothing, nothing about it. In fact, I didn't have the long white gloves like people did. But it was quite an event. You just can see we have cadets from the uh, Navy Yard. Uh, it was at the, um, the middle school, and it was standing room only. And there's two people here tonight who were there, my sister and my very good friend Stanley. So I went downtown, and we had what they called sidewalk sales, and I bought a little dress for 10 bucks, put my little dress on, and got into the pageant, and here is my very best friend in high school, Joanne, and she was in it too. And what you see here for the picture, I like to say everybody smiles in pictures, and what you can't tell from this picture is it's come down to her, her or I, going to be first runner-up and winner. And like I said, I coached her through the whole thing. I didn't say that, but I, she was very nervous. So I coached her through the whole thing with my little singing and dancing. And we were four finalists. There's two over here. So what they did with the four finalists was they asked each of us a question. And my question was, if you could meet anybody you want to, who would that be? And in an instant, I wanted to say my favorite singer. But I was not quite aware of society's viciousness, but I was kind of on the cusp of it. And I thought, no, don't say that. They won't like it. So I thought really fast, what would everybody in here like to hear? And what do I want to say? Um, and I said, the president. And the entire, except for you two, my parents included probably, um, booed me. And as a young lady, and as you can see, what I wanted to show you, the picture, we're just young ladies in a beauty pageant. We're just, you know, trying to have a good experience. And I probably froze, I think, I don't remember exactly, but I mean, this was a huge audience, and I was just stunned. And nobody said anything, just booze. And so I quavered. And what I liked about doing this story um, was that I thought that I didn't have it in me to overcome. I thought that came many years later, and I was going to tell you that. But actually, I did. And in retelling this story, I remember that I did. I, it probably was just in a matter of seconds, but I started to say very, I was just standing there shaking, and, and I started, and nobody said anything. Nobody moved. And I started to say, well, it must be a really hard job. Probably really lots to do. And probably half of you voted for him. <laughs> and I was done. Took my place. And as you can tell, she knows. She knows she's in. <laughs> she knows. She knows I've got this. They just I don't have a clue. But my shoulders are hunched forward. And I um, I was first runner up. I'm surprised I got that far with no gloves. But I did. I did. So there were, what the, what the paper didn't tell, they told this lovely story, and the, t and the caption was, beauty is in abundance. But what they didn't tell you was, so were beasts. <laughs> so if any of you beasts are still alive, John says, I can't say those words. So, thank you.
Danielle Rocco, known as Coach Danny, has learned the importance of taking care of one's body and living with a healthy mindset. She is a mother of three, wife, co-owner of NHA Gymnastics. She is also a former professional ballerina, healthy lifestyle specialist, and an entrepreneur with an unshakable passion to help individuals become the people that they deserve to be and that they want to be. In her introduction to her true tale, Danielle explains, events happen to us, but they do not define us. The power in each of us is to listen and be open to receive what is placed in front of us. And as to her story, a split moment in time took her identity, her body, and her life. And she says, I became the definition of that event for a long time. Unknown to me, years of living in self-agony and chronic pain, and chronic pain <clears throat> a small spark of life in those years remained lit. And that spark turned into unshakable passion. And I overcame. So Coach Danny, come up and share with us your true tale. We can give up or rise. I am Danielle Rocco. Welcome to my world of overcoming, giving up or rising up, the internal struggle. I thought I had overcome my life's events as I refer to them. I even took pride in the achievement in this part of my life. I wore it like a badge of honor. Didn't that make me somehow smarter, savvier, more important? That is how I used to think. Looking back, my self-worth was totally determined on how much struggle I had conquered. But down deep, hidden, somewhere where I didn't look, lived the opposite. Self-doubt, unworthiness, shamefulness had set up camp, and it had no intention of leaving. <laughs> to me, it was a slippery slope to look at who I was, how I truly felt, and the fears and uncertainty. Was I strong enough to open those doors? If I unlocked it, would I lose total control of the emotions that I thought I had tamed? Would I turn into the scared child that was forced to watch her mother be raped? Would I become the judgment of others from being a teenage mom? Would I crawl up into a ball of fear from the rage of an alcoholic I lived with? Better than reliving those chapters, I would stay safe where I was in a state of overcoming. But the joke was on me, because God had a different plan for my life. Who I should be, where I should be, and the value I had. It's funny, time, sometimes fate taps us lightly on the shoulder. When we ignore it, which I had trained myself to do, it hits us upside the head. Wake up. Call it my stubborn Italian side. I needed something more than a little tap. So fate took a tree, and rocked my world. 
that one event, one day, was big enough, loud enough, and finally woke me up and started my rising up. That split moment in time took my identity, my body, the life I knew. I found myself the definition of that event. Until just as that one split second took it, another moment lit that spark that was still inside me that turned into my unshakable passion that sits here today. You see, I'll take you back. It was a normal day, nothing different than any other day. As I went through my normal daily to-dos that we all do, I had no idea that one o'clock that afternoon, the person that looked back at me at that mirror, in that mirror, would no longer exist. As I drove from my office to my home, it happened. I saw a brilliant, peaceful white. I felt a sense of just pure calmness that I had never felt. And then like that, there was nothing. My eyes opened. And there I was, in my car, wedged sideways between two trees. The engine whistled in my passenger seat, and a cloud of dust hung in the air from the airbags. Panic filled my body. Do I do nothing? Do I sit here and wait for help? Do I do something, anything? Irrational thoughts whirled in my head until my primitive instincts kicked in. My brain screamed at me, Danielle, get out, get out except nothing happened. I was weak, unmoving. My adrenaline rushed and willed my body to catch up with my panicked mind. Keep trying to move, I said to myself. Keep pushing the door. You didn't survive to be engulfed in flames. Slowly, the door cracked open and I slid to the ground. And there I waited. For what? I don't know. I had an angel that day Maybe we all have angels nudging us, waiting, picking us up, watching us crumble. My angel might have saved me from a premature death, but it was my duty to do something or nothing with it. That day left me paralyzed mentally and physically. No longer a wife, mother, friend, or athlete. What I knew was not there. I remember one night, my youngest son walked into the room. As I lay there in my bed, lifeless and gray, I saw the fear in his eyes. I saw the not knowing of what had happened to his mom, the uncertainty if I was going to be okay, and if he would have someone to call mom in the morning. Looking at your son's vulnerability tells you a whole lot of where you are. He didn't mask the emotions in his eyes. He saw the situation for what it was. And that was the start of my rising up. You see, we all have events, things in our life that mold us, bring us internal strength, give us the opportunity to grow. And during these past three years, I've changed. The person I knew died that day. But a better me was born, a stronger me, and a braver me. See. Here's the difference. We all have things that we go through. Some we have control over. Some we're self-induced by our own bad decisions. Some are given to us out of our control, and some we let happen. But my secret to overcoming is simple. It took a long time, a lot of pitfalls, but it's simple. Listen, 
accept responsibility, and the scariest for me is feel. Really feel over and over and over again. Every day I live in chronic pain, I stand here, sit here, in front of you, in a body I have learned to love. One that fails me at times, one that surprises me, one that reminds me of that day, and one that drops me to my knees as I will the pain to end. So I remind myself every day, one, it is my life and my job to rise up and listen. I might not always like what I hear, but listen to the answers to my prayers that I pray. And number two, be responsible for me, who I am deep down and who I want to be. It's not my excuse and it's not my definition of who I am. And the hardest one, number three, feel. Really, really feel. It's okay. When I feel weak and worthless, I have not failed. During this time that I am blessed to walk this earth, I will have moments of feeling like I have conquered and overcome. And I'm going to have moments that I feel like I've hit rock bottom and I live in sludge. But those moments at rock bottom, those yucky moments, those are the moments that you need to embrace and feel. They do not mean you're going backwards. They are showing me my strength, my power, and moving me faster and better into the next chapter. Embracing and loving those emotions and ups and downs is the true, true definition of overcoming and my true definition of this is not how my story will end. Thank you. Nicely done. Henry Katzman is a homeschooled high school senior working towards a path of becoming a religious professional through the Unitarian Universalist denomination. Based on his personal experience, he considers himself a mental health advocate, and he uses his public speaking skills to lend light to this subject. His story involves what is called wilderness therapy, and it takes place in a pretty dark point in his life. Says Henry, the story is about a lot of things, but it is, in the main it is about the bonds between my compatriots and me. It's also about the perseverance it took to get through. Henry's story begins with him getting dropped off in the woods of North Carolina. But rather than hear me tell you about the rest of it, let's hear directly from Henry. Come on up and tell us about Tales of Wilderness Therapy. Henry Kaplan. All righty. <laughs> so I'm just going to start. Uh, the weirdest part of being in wilderness therapy was the ride to the program. Most kids get kidnapped in the middle of the night by transportation companies, but I went willingly. Don't get me wrong. It seems scary, and if I had been given the choice not to go, I would have taken it. But I was out of choices. In the woods, 
there's a sort of peace, only disturbed by the inner warfare that comes from any therapeutic environment. But within those woods, those giant looming trees with the ground within their embrace, I would soon learn to feel at peace. I had seen this coming at an inpatient unit when I was told that I was going to wilderness therapy because going home wasn't an option. I came to terms with this, although not without its own set of feelings that were hard to comprehend, let alone give space to. I remember waving goodbye to my dad. This is about a week after being in the inpatient unit and hugging him and being on my way and then being led by two men who I did not know into a van. It, it was white and driven into the woods, kind of like the weird white van thing going on there. <laughs> and at this point in time, although I had been in and out of treatment, it was outpatient comparatively to inpatient, although the last month had been completely inpatient. And the culture of teens that find themselves in these places seemed foreign and to, like now, pretty baffling. <laughs> there were hierarchies and norms that nobody on the outside would even consider. Although this wilderness program was different, a separation from that inner society, if not in its like holistic ways of healing, than its obvious setting that was so different than a hospital setting. My first day there was short. I hiked for roughly two hours to find the group of boys I would call my brothers. The path was twisting and turning, and the backpack they issued me was filled with gear. It, helped, it felt heavy. In hindsight, it was probably roughly over 50 pounds, although my heart felt heavier than this backpack. I couldn't help but to think, Henry, you've done it this time. Once I came into the camp and the boys approached me, I noticed how dirty they seemed. I would later learn that you were only allowed to shower every once every two weeks if you were lucky. <laughs> They did some kind of welcoming group, a ritual I knew by heart by the end of the stay, but regardless, I learned that most had been there for either a week to 60 days. The boys were there for a variety of reasons, from defiance, trouble with the law, and mental illness, and the main commonality that nobody wanted to be there. <laughs> the next few months are complicated to describe and could either be told in a summary or a long story of many hours. So I'm going to do the, like, summary. <laughs> At first, I felt alienated. The boys were respectful, but also rough. But I felt safe knowing that if things were to get out of hand, the staff would intervene. I would soon learn our days were to be filled with hiking, gathering wood, gathering water, setting up camp, and doing therapy. The staff were from all walks of life, but the commonality was their authority over this. And I kind of put in notes that a good story idea for a future story would be how we rebelled against this authority and kind of funny ways. Um, so regardless, within a few weeks, I had fallen back into my old thought patterns and behaviors that mimic those I had left at home. But staff found out, my therapist hiked in, and she, got me a, and she gave me a speech I remembered to this day. She said, Henry, I love horses. I said, I want to go anywhere but here, preferably home. <laughs> she used a simile that I had fallen off my horse and that I needed to get back on it something I had at the time no context of, and proudly say that that has happened to me since, but again, I didn't understand it. So I thought this lady was crazy, maybe even a crazy horse lady, kind of like the cat kind, but with much larger and dangerous animals. But regardless, she made it impossible for me to hurt myself. I was, I was searched, a full body pat down, every time I had to use the bathroom, a hole in the ground we dug with sticks, and also had to sleep in something we called the burrito, basically wrapped in tarps between two staff. Um, this lack of trust was impactful. The idea that nobody seemed to care was impactful, and the idea that I was in this for the long run was impactful. The boys at first seeing my instability were wary of me, but as I stabilized, opened up, and showed vulnerability, they and or we became closer. 
As we stayed around the fire talking about the food we would eat, the food there was purposely awful because it was supposed to be kind of a suffering experience. (laughs) And the girls we would talk to, it was a boys-only program, uh, found that I wasn't so different from them after all. Over long hikes where boys would cry and scream, begging the staff to take a break from the physical work that it is to carry a 50-pound, probably more backpack for hours uphill in the rain, we would bond together, sometimes taking their backpack or at other times breaking out in song. Our group name was Bravo, and we called ourselves the Bravo Boys. We, w- we would sing while hiking, we are Bravo, juvenile delinquents, who are re- depressed teens. <laughs> and with that song came an affirm- affirmation of what we were. But the first time I was able to laugh at it, The ridiculousness of being in the woods of North Carolina came to me, and for once, regardless of how this program was put together, I felt as if getting better, whatever that meant, was something worthwhile. There was a level system. Most boys left at three or four, but my therapist wanted me to reach six, something that I hadn't been done in forever and was really rare. To do this, I needed not only be able to show competent self-care, like drinking a gallon of water a day and brushing my teeth, Um, but go above and beyond the leadership skills in bushcraft, which is a form of primitive survival techniques. I began leading the boys in guided meditations every night and guided those who weren't doing well by just listening. Soon, when a problem happened, most boys would look towards me. Despite what insecurities, regardless of my I felt, I was in charge. The boys would cry in front of me, laugh in front of me, and tell me their secrets and insecurities. We soon, at-risk teenage boys, learned to love each other, not for what we wanted each other to be, but for who we are. The average stay was 90 days, and around day 60, I had adapted fully to the program. I was able to laugh at myself thinking of home. The biggest challenge was confronting myself, wasn't confronting myself, but learning how to bow drill. It did not come easy to me. The premise being you make a fire by rubbing two sticks together with a bow to speed up the process. Now, I could find a beautiful parallel between life and the frustration of not having warmth and food until I was proficiently able to make fire, but at the time, it wasn't about that. It was about me going home. It was about me starting a long journey to recovery in a measurable way. It was about me feeling happy for the first time in years as I made my first fire. By the end of the stay, I was the best bow driller in the group. I, as my therapist and staff put it, were, was the emotional leader of the group. And most importantly, I found myself thinking of the long term. Unfortunately, the future brought more hardship and more severe illness, but I was able to look back at this and see that I had lived 90 days with the Bravo boys in the woods in North Carolina. My last day was a sad but exciting one. I moved life to a new program, to new issues, and to the complexities of outside life. What I did find was in those woods, within those trees, and the star-filled sky, I, with nothing, at at times found something, and that something still inspires me to this day. If you were to ask me how to describe that something, I couldn't. I could say it's only hope or maybe perseverance, but the words seem too insignificant. The best way to describe it is being near a fire, being feeling the warmth but also the chaos of the woods around you. Having a bird chirp, a distant howl, maybe even a highway, knowing that it's all interconnected, and more than that, the different aspirations of the same thing. Thank you. Nicely done. Christine Kelly is a Portsmouth-based speaker and coach 
who uses brain-based techniques to help people achieve meaningful change in their lives. Christine enjoys storytelling, <coughs> speaking at events, and helping clients one-to-one. -one. As Christine reminds us, everyone goes through changes in life and has to overcome life issues. Her story focuses on creating something new out of a challenging situation. And she uses the classical myth of the Selkies to tell her stories. She says, the Selkies are mythical seals living off the coast of Ireland that transform into human beings during the full moon. The Selkies story <clears throat> describes finding your true self and returning to it after a harrowing journey. The Selkie story, she says, parallels my own and provides a metaphor for overcoming. And so, Christine, come on up and share with us your Selkie story of a new skin. So, over the past five years, I've had an amazing transformation. Of course, amazing isn't how I described it in the moment, but I can't say those words here. <laughs> At the start, I was a consultant in financial services firm. I was working 60 to 80 hours a week. I was making a ton of money, and I really loved what I was doing. I loved the complexity, I loved the richness, and I loved helping people change. Now, the change wasn't personal change, it was financial change, and it wasn't for the people, it was for the corporation. But along the way, throughout the process, I helped people grow in whatever it was they were doing. And then one day, doing something as innocuous as checking into a hotel, I fell. And I fell really, really hard. I got bruised, I broke a rib, and I did something to the middle of my back. And that something has caused me a lot of trouble. It's caused me to go through virtually every treatment in every discipline that you could even imagine. It caused me lots of lost sleep, and it's caused me a, boat, a boatload of pain. But it also made fundamental changes to who I was. No longer could I work a 60-hour day. I could barely make it through any day without sleeping for two hours. After doing something as simple as walking the dog or grabbing a few groceries, it was exhausting. It also changed the way I thought. Now, I was a statistics major with a 4.0 average, used to doing all this esoteric math stuff. And I found myself not even be able to count cards in a cribbage game. And that only goes up to 31. So it affected me physically. It affected me mentally. And it changed virtually everything about me. I used to be able to think my way out of anything. I used to be able to do anything I wanted. And I used to be really physically fit and physically active. But all that was wiped away. And that reminds me of the story of the Selkies. So the Selkies are a group of seals that live off a mythical island off the coast of Ireland. And when the full moon comes up, they are able to shed their skins and become human female 
forms. And they can enjoy their time on the land as long as the moon is up. Once the moon sets, they put their skins back on, and they go back into the ocean for another month. So one day, while they were doing this during the full moon, this man came along. And this man was a local, so he knew the story. He knew what the Selkies did. And he, he, he also knew another bit, that if they couldn't find their skin, they had to stay in human form forever. So since he was looking for a wife, he took one of the skins, folded it up, and stuck it in his pocket. So one by one, the seals came back, and each of them put their skin on and dove back into the sea until there was one last woman standing there. And he said to her, if you come with me and stay with me for seven years, I'll give you your skin back, and you could go back to where you were. And reluctantly, she agreed. I mean, what choice did she have? And she went off with them, and they married, and they had a daughter. And for a while, it was okay. But eventually, it just didn't feel right. She just wasn't happy in the shape she was in. So she decided that she was going to look for that skin, to go back to the who that she was and she used to be. So she looked everywhere, and finally she enlisted the help of her daughter. She told her daughter the story, and her daughter went out and helped search for this, the skin. Her daughter found it stuck in that pocket where the man had put it. So she took it. But as she tried to put it on, it just crumbled and disintegrated in her hands. And she was heartbroken. She didn't know how she'd ever get back to who she was. So she did know, however, in a cave on the side of a cliff lived the old woman of the world. And this old woman of the world knew all the secrets. So she knew if she went there, she'd be able to find out what to do. So she took this treacherous journey through the crashing waves to get to this slippery cliff where she had to climb up to find that cave where the old women of the world lived. And she got in there and told her her story. And the woman said, you know, the old woman said, you know, sometimes if a selkie has taken their skin off for maybe a year or two, they can put it back on and it fits okay and off they can go. But more often than not, it doesn't fit anymore because that old skin doesn't recognize the changes that have occurred in the meantime. It doesn't recognize everything you've learned to that date. So what you have to do is mourn the past and then let it go along the path that it's meant to go. And then take a new skin and step into your future. That way you bring what was needed of the past and what's needed of the future and step into who you are. So she told the woman how to find a new skin. And the woman went off and did it and came back to her daughter and said goodbye. She came back a year later to see her, to see the daughter, and the daughter knew something had changed. The old was still there, but it had melted with the new. And the, the woman had changed. She finally found her way home to who she was meant to be. So this speaks to me a lot because that's kind of where I am. 
I had to let go of that past. I could take learnings with me, but I needed new skin to put on to move forward into the future. And now I'm really hoping that this new skin will take me home to who I really am. Thank you. Nicely done. Tom Osberg came into storytelling by listening to his dad's fisherman friends. When one story ended, it led to another and another, and storytelling just drew him in. And that's what he still loves about storytelling. It brings us all together, and as Tom says, lights us all up. Tom's from Wyndham, New Hampshire, and for years he's told tales on family, friends, and youth group camping trips. With his own kids grown up, he's now branching out. You can learn more at TomTallTales.com. Tom says that this true tale is usually best told around the glowing embers of a campfire. <clears throat> it is an adventure caving story where he gets into a close situation, kind of scary, but thankfully, no death or injury. He adds, it does get my own pulse going every time I tell it. Tom, up, come up and say, tell us what you can't see can't hurt you. So when I went to school at West Virginia Wesleyan, I wanted to join the uh, Outdoor Adventure Club. They had two requirements. One, you had to have your own carbide headlamp. <laughs> Two, you had to not be afraid of the dark. They took the freshmen across a fall golden field and then through the ferns and the cold rocks and into a cave. That cave was dark. It was not just dark, it was black. I mean, there had never been sun in the cave. It was the kind of darkness in a cave that, that leeches the light from your candles and your, your headlamps out of the air. Well, I was, I was just standing by the edges because I was a brave freshman. And I was watching the other freshmen wander around. I think they were, they were waiting for them to overcome their fears of claustrophobia and darkness. And I was standing there with nothing to overcome. And I felt a breeze at my feet. So I bent down and I could tell there was a small passageway leading off to the side. That small passageway had the scent of mud and clay, which I knew meant there was probably like formations in there that maybe I could find before anybody else. So I climbed in really quickly before anybody saw me. I climbed in. And I walked, I climbed in, crawled slowly in for a ways. And then the passageway gave way to a big crack. The floor disappeared into an abyss. Across this, about 20 feet, there was a shelf. But I had practiced this kind of thing in the gym up, up on the campus. What you do is you do a, 
a chimney crawl. You put your feet on the muddy side and your back against the cold limestone with your hands on one side, and you, and you form yourself into a human wedge. And then you can kind of shuffle across safely. So I was shuffling across, and then one foot slipped because I got, I got sidetracked. I, I got distracted by a black spot up on the ceiling, three feet up. I cursed myself for, for not telling anybody that I had gone in there alone. But I really cursed those people who, who graffiti caves. The caves are beautiful, limestone, and, and the carbide lamps that we used back then used to put out like a, a two-inch little flame. And, and people used to use those to do dots or little arrows. Some even did graffiti. Well, I was halfway across the, the, the crack, so I continued, got up on the shelf, went around the corner, and sure enough, there was a vertical silo, a huge tunnel that went up with a stalactite and a stalagmite met. It was glistening white. It had water droplets. It just kind of hung there, probably for a hundred years as they slowly evaporated and left crystalline, glowing, like, like lights on a Christmas tree. It was just beautiful, this huge thing that went up. I walked around it. It was a dead end. But I had my, my thing I had found that I wanted to go back and tell everyone, so I got back up on the shelf, lowered myself into into the crack as a human wedge. It seemed harder this time. Maybe I was tired or my feet were wet. Or, but I, I started shimming across and shimming across. Suddenly my left arm was up against the wall instead of the tunnel out. I was like, what did I do wrong? There should be a tunnel. Gingerly I looked down into the abyss and three feet below me was the tunnel. Because I had been on the shelf, I had gotten into the crack higher on the way out than on the way in. So I was right up against the ceiling, and I looked up, and there was the black spot. The black spot wasn't graffiti. It, it didn't look like graffiti. It, it, it made me feel really, really uncomfortable. I wanted to get away from the black spot, so... I moved my left foot down and then my right foot and my left hand and my right hand and, and slid down four inches. And then my left foot and my right foot and my left hand and my right hand and slid down four inches. And I looked up at the black spot and it looked thicker than it did before. So I left my left foot and my right foot and my left hand and my right hand slid down four inches. And, and I looked up and it was bowl-shaped in the middle. My left foot, my right foot, and my right hand, and I slid some more, and it, it was growing. The spot was getting bigger. And I, I slid down some more. I had to get away from the spot. And I'm sliding down more very carefully, not trying to, I didn't want to lose it and fall. And I slid one foot and one foot and one hand, one hand slid down four inches. And I look up and it's moving now. The black spot is actually moving. I can tell it's something, and I don't know what it is. I have to get my left foot, my right foot, my right hand, my right hand, and slide down four more inches, and I look up, and now it's got a big ball, and it's going, and I realize what it is. They were hibernating spiders. The flame from my lamp and my breath had woken up all these spiders. They were standing on one another, making a ball, 
and they were all waking up, all these spiders running to the middle over top of me. We're all standing and over top of me. They were getting closer and closer. I'm trying to get down towards the tunnel, and I'm sliding a little bit more and a little bit more, and now they're standing, and it's forming a ball, and I'm sliding a little bit more down towards the tunnel, and now it's forming a drip, and the drip is getting, I'm tipping my head trying to stay away from them. Finally, the drip hits my head, and the spiders run down my back and down my shirt and over my arms, and I'm clamping my mouth shut so they won't go down my mouth, and I'm screaming in my head. My eyeballs are popping out, and I throw myself through the tunnel and out into the cave screaming. And to this day, I still go on adventures. (laughs) I have stared down bears. I've caught rattlesnakes when I had to. But at home, those little terrifying things, my wife has to catch those. Martha Reed Johnson grew up in Georgetown, Massachusetts, and has returned home after 35 years living below the Mason-Dixon line. In addition to being a caretaker for her 85-year-old mother and their 200-year-old family home, she's a counselor, behavioral specialist, and a storyteller working in public education. She claims she is... (coughs) once again enjoying shoveling snow and scraping ice off her car in the dark hours of the early morning. Her story has three main characters, an 85-year-old man who applies to med school, an 81-year-old teacher who donates his body to science, and a 10-year-old who faces obstacles to her dream. Martha adds, life is filled with challenges and obstacles on the road to achieving our dreams. Some never achieve their dreams, some get stalled along the way, and others live their dreams beyond death. Martha's story is death and dreams. Martha Reed Johnson, come on up. All right, everybody, shake the spiders off, because I'm still a little bit (laughs) tired. Ira Sinclair sat at the table surrounded by his family. The candles glowed and lit up the faces of all he loved. He took a deep breath and blew out all his candles. Then he looked at his family and said, I've applied to Harvard Medical School. There was silence at the table. And then there were whispers. What did he say? Harvard? What? Medical school? And then a voice from the end of the table spoke up and said, Pop, you're 85 years old. (laughs) Ira looked at his son Benjamin and said, It is never too late. I've wanted to go to medical school since I was 10 years old. When I moved to Boston, I would walk along the Charles River and look over at the campus, and I dreamed of being a doctor and going to Harvard Medical School. 
His 10-year-old granddaughter, Sophia Sinclair, was at the table, and she looked up at her grandfather and said, Pop, it's never too late. My teacher told me you can learn forever. His son Benjamin kind of mumbled, This is ridiculous. But the party was over, and everyone went home, and no one spoke of it again. Weeks and months went by. Thanksgiving came, and the family was gathered at the table, and just before Ira picked up the knife to carve the turkey, he held up a piece of paper with a Harvard Medical School logo at the top and said, I've been accepted. Again, there was silence at the table. And whispering, what? Did he just say accepted? Medical school? His son Benjamin stood up and grabbed the letter out of his father's hand and began to read, Dear Iris Sinclair, congratulations. You have been accepted to Harvard Medical School Anatomical Gifts Program. (laughs) Dad? Ira looked at Benjamin and said, I'm going to get there one way or the other. (laughs) And indeed, Ira did. Several months later, he went to Harvard Medical School. I heard Ira's story from Sophia Sinclair. She was a first-year medical student at Tufts University. She had just finished her first year of med school, and was speaking at the memorial service for the 64 body donors to Tufts Medical School. My father was one of those donors. And Sophia told the story of how her dream to become a doctor was born on the day her 85-year-old grandfather announced he'd applied to med school. It was a wonderful memorial service. And after the service was over, all of the families of the body donors were invited to go to a reception. We had been asked in the months leading up to the memorial service to send in photographs, specifically candid photographs and awards or things that were memories of our loved one. So when we walked into the reception hall, the walls were covered with pictures of all these body donors. And then my family was given the number 33, and we were to find table number 33 and have a seat. My mother and my sister and my brothers and I sat down at table 33. There was a picture of my father, and there were six empty seats. And we were told that the med students that worked on our father were going to join us at the table. I was a little creeped out, to tell you the truth. (laughs) But then they came and they sat down. And Sophia Sinclair was one of those students. And it was a little creepy until the students started asking us about my dad. And we shared stories about him. And then they shared stories about their experiences in medical school and all that they had learned. And I thought about my dad. He had gone to Tufts University to study chemistry. And when he graduated, he became an industrial chemist for DuPont Chemical. But after a few years, he decided that was not going to be the career for him. So he went back to school, got his master's degree and his education doctorate, and became a teacher, and then a teacher of teachers. 
And he was one of those teachers who was not a teacher just Monday through Friday, 8 to 4. He was a teacher every day, 365 days a year. It was simply in his DNA. And as I sat there at, at that table listening to these students, I thought, wow, Dad kept teaching even after he died. <laughs> wow. And then I looked at Sophia, and I thought at 10 years old, she knew what she wanted to be. And I thought, what did I want to be when I was 10? And then I remembered, I wanted to be a professional wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> and I told this to my older brother, who then told me that was a ridiculous idea. And then he thought about it for a minute. He said, no, Marty, you should become a writer. You're always telling us these silly little stories. Write them down. I thought, writer, hmm. My father had overheard the conversation. So the very next day, he presented me with a special journal and a pen. And he said, Marty, start writing your stories. And so I did. And I filled journal after journal after journal with stories. And when I got to junior high and to high school, I started reading articles in the new newspaper by Irma Bombeck. Some of you are old enough to know who she was. <laughs> she made me laugh. And then I read her book, it's The Grass is Always Greener Over the Septic Tank. That made me laugh a lot. And I decided I was going to be Irma Bombeck. And most of my high school friends didn't even know who she was, but that's who I wanted to be. So I went to college, and I decided to major in English and creative writing. But in my freshman year, first semester, I was assigned to remedial writing with Professor Cole. And every Thursday afternoon, I arrived in her office with my writing, my stories, and she would pull out her red flare pen and cross out paragraphs and circle words and just all these markings on the paper. And every week, I left more deflated than the week before. And so at the end of the semester, I put my pen down and stopped writing. I didn't write for 25 years. I kept telling my silly little stories, and then I even produced a little CD so I could send my father, who was living in Massachusetts and I was in South Carolina, a CD to listen to my stories. And he called me and he said, I love your stories, Marty, but why don't you write them again? Write your stories. And so I took my father at his challenge, and I started writing stories. And I decided to post them on the blog so that I could post them each week and my father could read them. And so every Sunday at 2 o'clock, he expected there to be a story. And for 60 weeks in a row, there was a, sun a story every Sunday by 2 o'clock. And then my father died. And my best audience wasn't there to read my stories anymore. And I stopped writing. So as I sat there with these medical students, thinking about my dad, looking at Sophia, and looking around the walls of all of these body donors, I started to think about all the dreams in that room. I thought about Sophia, who knew at 10 and worked hard to reach her dream. And I thought about Ira, who I think would have enjoyed medical school if he'd gotten there a little earlier. <laughs> and then I thought about my dad, who found his dream a little later, but lived it beyond his life. And I started to think, who will I be? Sophia, my dad, 
or Ira. Wow, thank you so much to all these wonderful storytellers. Isn't this great? Let's thank them again. And of course, to all of you who came here to sit together and hear and share. So, so coming up next, we will hear an interview of one of tonight's storytellers, Henry. Um, but first, I have some logistical things to tell you. And they are especially important because in April, we have a break from our usual schedule. So our next True Tales Live, rather than being on the last Tuesday of April, is going to be a week after that. Okay, That's Tuesday, May 1st. It has a theme of out on a limb. And we actually still have plenty of room. We need tellers for that, so please let us know you want to be one of them. Um, right, so that's going to mean two shows in May. So May 1st and then the last Tuesday in May. Um, let's see. It's also going to throw off the workshop, but not for this month, okay? So let me tell you about that. If you want to be a storyteller, you can write to us at truetaleslive1 at gmail.com to sign up, and we hope to hear from you. Now, if you are interested but not really sure of yourself, or you simply want some feedback before you get up and do it, we do have monthly workshops in which we do just that, and we have a lot of fun, actually. Um, they're held here at PPMTV, 280 Marcy Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, the first Tuesday of most months from 7.30 to 9. And the next one is on April 3rd. It's free and open to the public. And we will tell you next month about how the May one is off. But we're good for that for April. So um, we also want to tell you to watch us on Comcast Channel 98 Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. And anytime as video on demand, you can go to YouTube and search for PPM TV, True Tales Live, and I promise we're soon going to have an easier way to find us. <laughs> we're working on that. So um, let's thank some of our behind-the-scenes-ish folks that make this show possible. We've got John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. Sure. And I'm Amy Antonucci, and until our next True Tales Live show, thank you so much for listening. And now we're going to go to David Frainer interviewing Henry Katzman.